This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, Snowflakes, and welcome to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. Subscribe to the New European at theneweuropean.co.uk slash save. For £10 a month, you get the printed and e-editions each week. The first 200 people to subscribe will get a signed copy of the latest volume of Alistair Campbell's diaries, which we've been serialising. They're really good. My name is Steve Anglesey. This week, we are going to take in Boris Johnson, Northern Ireland, coronavirus, the EU. We're going to be talking about standards and fairness in, in our politics and why those things don't seem to matter much anymore. I'm going to be discussing them with the Irish journalist Matt Cooper and the English journalist and author Ben Fenton. And then I'm going to be putting more bad politicians into the Hall of Shame. But first, the New European's latest front page shows Boris Johnson being arrested by Kate and Steve from Line of Duty. Are you watching Line of Duty? I've never watched it before, but I'm enjoying this new series after a, a, a Slow start, I would say. Um, our front page has one massive one, approval on social media. Here are some of your uh, responses. Christina Sutton said, now we're sucking diesel. Robin Curry said, get Ted Hastings on the case. Mike Abbott said, Boris Johnson is the man who taught H everything. Uh, at Kendall Mint Kate on Twitter, uh, she quoted Gail Vella, who is the, um, the, the the journalist who was assassinated in the series and has led to the investigation um, that um, the um, AC12 people are investigating. Uh, Gail Vella quotes, the secret to high office appears to no longer reside in revealing the deepest truths, but in telling the most attractive lies. Chris Purcell says Boris Johnson is a total chisel. Uh, recovery bond. 
uh, is less impressed on Twitter. Uh, he says the new European is still in business. Wow. Uh, a man there with 11 followers. And David S. White, who seems nice, says three pounds for a publication that has no problem fueling Putin's PR campaign. I'd rather have my eyes poked out with a red hot poker than pay your sordid little comic a single penny it makes me wonder who is really behind the new european well david s i can tell you it, it is h who is behind the new european and he's being um assisted he or she is being assisted by young pc pilkington so uh, happy to clear that up for you the social media message that we're really excited about this week came from line of duties writer jed mercurio he wrote The BBC has rejected the New Europeans' proposal for Line of Duty Series 7. In unrelated news, the random company we set up this morning has just won a lucrative government contract. Excellent stuff there. And a hat tip, as always, to Chris Barker, who designs our covers and is brilliant. You will find him on Twitter at Chris the Barker. Look out for the New Europeans' Line of Duty cover on the newsstands. Now, the piece that inspired Chris's cover was written by our first guest. Uh, Matt Cooper is the host of the uh, Drive Time show on Today FM, Ireland's biggest independent radio station. He's also the uh, the former editor of the Sunday Tribune newspaper. And from where you're sitting, Matt, which are you in Dublin or are you in Cork? I'm in Dublin. You're in Dublin, and I think you are fairly bemused by the way our own media has handled stories about Boris Johnson um, and public standards. Uh, Before we start in on all of that, Matt, another thing that has failed to really make front pages and the top of news bulletins here um, are the scenes of violence in Northern Ireland over the Easter weekend into this week, um, Wednesday night, we, we, we saw the, the scenes of a, a bus being hijacked uh, and set on fire. What is your take from the South on this, on why it is happening um, and, uh, and what is happening? But just for say for us, sometimes we in the Republic as well can be guilty of turning our eyes away from what happens in Northern Ireland, although not in recent days and certainly not after what happened with that particular incident with the bus burning. But we do keep an eye on it, uh, most of us, and we're very much uh, following what was said last night by Arlene Foster, or rather tweeted by Arlene Foster when she tried to make political capital out of what was straightforward uh, an incident involving uh, loyalist paramilitaries egging on young people, and which is one of the more sinister elements of all of this, is that a younger generation who have no memory and knowledge of what happened in the past have been cynically used uh, by criminal elements Uh, under the guise of loyalism uh, to have a go at the police. And it doesn't actually help when you have Arlene Foster as leader of the Democratic Unionist Party for her own more narrow political agenda, deciding to tweet condemning the real criminals of Sinn Féin, a reference to the Bobby Story funeral of last summer, uh, which led to her only last week um, attacking the PSNI, demanding the resignation of the chief constable, something that is a major thing for her to do, given that policing is such a sensitive issue in Northern Ireland and has occupied so much time over the last 20, 25 years to get right, for her to try and undermine the chief constable for political reasons was regarded as a very serious issue by those in the Republic 
who are interested in what's going on in the north. So that's one part of it. But it has been noticed here as well, just how little attention is paid in Britain to what goes on in a part of the United Kingdom. That, yes, there was the obligatory comment last time from Boris Johnson condemning the violence, but the media coverage is muted, to say, to put it mildly. Mm. The idea that events like this could take place in Glasgow or in Cardiff or in Bristol or Manchester and not be a major item on your broadcast news and for your news media in general, it would beggar belief. But because it happens in Belfast, well, that's over there. That's something for the Irish to look after. And that is noted in this island. Yes, of course, and that's we're, it. Kind of, it does give the lie to the United Kingdom and and all of that. How how much of this? I mean, I'm looking at. I've seen Arlene Foster, uh, the Arlene Foster stuff. I've, I've seen her over the the last week. There are all also obviously people like um, Professor Chris Presler, who is from Belfast, is the head of the University of Manchester Library. He is sort of saying this is, you know, 25% paramilitary, 25% is just youth vandalism, 50% is Brexit related. I saw a tweet from Patrick Keelty on on Thursday, of course, whose whose father was killed um, in 1988, I think, by the UDA. And he is saying that he said the lies put on the side of a bus five years ago have almost cost a bus driver his life. How, how much of this is frustration with the Northern Ireland protocol and uh, and frustration at loyalist politicians? Well, that quarter, quarter, half breakdown that you just cited, I wouldn't necessarily fully agree with, yeah. because I think that leaves out the element of criminality, which uses loyalism as a mask or a flag of convenience. Uh, many of those who are involved, and this, as I said earlier, one of the most cynical things is taking advantage of disaffected use are those who know no better to go out and to create the violence on their behalf is an element who are trying to protect their criminal patch at present and uh, that that is a significant part the brexit issue is not one that i think is going to be discussed by the youngsters who are throwing petrol bombs and yeah. uh, no there is an issue it does raise issues in relation to sovereignty um, and that is the sort of thing that was more easily understood and then is ratcheted up by certain uh, elements for their own uh, political advancement. But uh, to say that Brexit per se is obviously there are enormous consequences out of in the first place uh, Northern Ireland voting by a large majority to stay within the European Union and having that view uh, effectively overturned by the fact that it was a overall majority of the UK and Northern Ireland with the DUP on the losing side of that vote in 2016 behaving like there were winners and then getting involved in supporting a hard Brexit which left the position of Northern Ireland eventually utterly exposed particularly when they discovered that Boris Johnson surprise surprise didn't honour his commitments to them and introduced the very thing that he said he would never do a border down the Irish Sea uh, so, yes, obviously, Brexit has a major feed into what is actually happening at present, but it's a lot more complicated as things with Northern Ireland always are. And, I, I, and because of that, I hate to ask such a simplistic question, but is there, a, is there a time soon where we will see a poll on Irish unification 
coming, do you think? And, and what sort of circumstances would have to exist for that to, to happen? Well, that very much is, of course, the call under the terms of the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, yeah. uh, for the Northern Ireland Secretary of State to make based on the information available to him. Uh, there is no guarantee, of course, that even if you have what would be described normally as a nationalist majority in the in the United in the Northern Ireland, that they would vote by a majority to join a united Ireland. Uh, there is an interesting change in the structure. 100 years on from the creation of Northern Ireland and the partition of this island, there is a significant number of people, both Catholic and Protestant, are of no religion, because let's remember perhaps religion is not as significant a factor as it once was. But there's a significant cohort of younger people in particular who identify themselves as Northern Irish. So this idea that a change in the religious demographics of Northern Ireland uh, will automatically bring about a, a united Ireland it is perhaps mistaken. And when it comes to the enthusiasm for a referendum, uh, particularly south of the border, there are many people who emotionally may feel the attachment to the idea of a united Ireland, but there are still many people who intellectually realise that for all sorts of reasons, it's far easier said than done, that there will be all sorts of economic and financial implications, which will be very difficult uh, to bring about. But more than that, there is a significant concern that just as Catholics and nationalists in the North became alienated by the creation of the six counties, leading to a Northern Ireland, leading to the, uh, the century of trouble in that in statelet. We have the potential that a forced United Ireland, even if endorsed by majority vote, could leave a very significant disgruntled minority, the potential for violence. And that is something that clearly we don't want to rush until we offer United Ireland, if there is to be an offer of United Ireland, on the basis of taking all of those things into consideration. I mean, that's it. that seems like a, a, a long time away. Would, do you expect to see something, this offer happening in the next 10 years, 20 years, ever? I think it possibly will. The demographics do. The former Taoiseach here in Ireland, Bertie Ahern, has spoken about 2028 as a possibility. Uh, others are saying in the Republic are saying no. But yeah, I think, you know, given that the uncertainty that we have seen brought about by Brexit, we never mm. thought of a situation like that, who can predict what might happen in the future with any degree of certainty? But you certainly cannot rule out the potential for a vote, and you can't rule out the potential for a vote being beaten let's let's turn to your excellent piece um in the new this week's new european which has sparked a, a quite wonderful cover and uh, which has, has got a lot of acclaim on social media you write that looking over from ireland it's astonishing to observe how little concern the british political and media establishments are showing about the revelations uh, about Boris Johnson, which are various. Why do you think this is? I mean, the, taking the media, we're, we're both in the media. Is it just as simple as the Tory papers forming a wall around Boris Johnson because he's the leader of the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister? It appears to look that way because something that I didn't get into in the space available to me in the piece would be a comparison, perhaps, with what I would have observed 
previously when the likes of Peter Mandelson got caught up in various financial controversies Mm -hmm. during his time as a Labour minister in the Blair administration and how it cost him twice his ministerial position. I also remember vaguely uh, the intense media scrutiny that there would have been in relation to uh, Sherry Blair and loans in relation to an apartment in Bristol. Um, And so to look at these things and to look at how they brought about legitimate media scrutiny at the time and to contrast it now to what is actually happening with Boris Johnson and also indeed uh, David Cameron, although great work has been done by the likes of the Financial Times and the Sunday Times in the Greensill scandal, looking at David Cameron's links to that. So you can't blame the media for that, although you would wonder why there has not been more political outrage. But getting back to Cameron, my interest isn't as much in his sexual behaviour um, I suppose most people now at this stage stand back and sort of leave what people do in their own private lives alone, except there are times when it actually does have public implications. And if you have a situation like as has been revealed, and I don't think anybody believes denials that Boris Johnson had a relationship with American woman Jennifer O'Curry. And when you look at the revelations in relation to her access to trade missions and also in relation to contracts paid for with state funds or public funds, then that here in Ireland would be regarded as absolutely outrageous and an absolute scandal. A situation where, like his current fiance, Carrie Simmons, decides to undertake a refurbishment of the flat in 10 Downing Street where they live, the four bedroom flat, sorry, over 11 Downing Street, excuse me, where they actually live. And to want to spend a quarter of a million pounds on that when the limit is £30,000, when there was a refurbishment a decade ago under David Cameron, that would lead to an immediate outcry here in Ireland about an outrageous misuse of public funds uh, for uh, personal use. And sorry, yes, I know that in this particular case, there's a, a charitable donations have been sought, but that in itself would cause outrage and that, hang on, What sort of quid pro quo would be involved if you have donors who are actually doing something like this on behalf of the prime minister and his fiance? Then there would have to be immediate concerns about, well, if this goes on, what actually else goes on? And that's why I'm absolutely baffled to see something which is staring us straight in the face, not actually getting the level of attention politically or in the media in the UK. And I suppose it goes further than that. I mean, I can see that there is an argument that people would make. Concentrate on the important things. Uh, Concentrate, for example, on the vaccine rollout and don't, don't bother sweating the small stuff. But that actually, to me, doesn't make sense because if you have a situation, there's an awful lot still, I would actually argue that in relation to the Johnson government's handling of COVID, which needs to be further explored, although, again, the media has done sections a very, very good job on that. But if you leave the small things go, and these things that I've been mentioning about Akuri and Simmons aren't necessarily small things, on the basis that he can do bigger and better things, then you will leave nearly anything go. Everything will be regarded as, ah, look, look at the bigger picture. Well, Actually, they all feed into the bigger picture. They're a testament to character and they're a testament to ability as well. It's it's an extraordinary state of affairs. uh, I I agree. And I I think and I think that Boris Johnson shows how appreciative he is for, for this situation when 
you know, last week he, he stands up in his new media centre and no one asks him about the implications of Jennifer O'Curry and the money, which is the interesting bit about it. And then this week he stands up there and uses the, the same COVID briefing uh, to uh, to have a pop at, uh, at Sadiq Khan. Um, you, you write that there are lessons for Britain in how Ireland has treated political corruption and you go over... Charles Hockey, who seems to have a lot of in common with Boris Johnson and Bertie Ahern too, who many of our people listening to this um, podcast will, will regard as a hero. Can you just go over what happened with, with both of those and what are the lessons from, from those for, uh, for Britain? Yeah, I mean, it's not like we have been immune to these situations here in Ireland. We had, long before Boris Johnson, we had a similar type of populist in Irish politics uh, in Charles Hawhey, who was Taoiseach at various occasions between 1979 and 1992. Uh, there was always um, deep suspicion about Charles Hawhey's lifestyle that many, many people highlighted at the time to be shouted down by his hardened supporters who urged us to look at the bigger picture and the alleged good that Charlie Hawley was doing because of his big vision, big thinking approach, which again wasn't necessarily the case at all. There was a, a big subterfuge in many respects and he was very rarely able to deliver. Uh, he also wrapped himself as Johnson tends to be doing now a lot in the cloak of nationalism, which is also something to be deeply suspicious of. But while he was doing that, and while he was involved in uh, all types of populist gestures in, during his political career in the way up, for example, as Minister for Health, free school, or free, all school children got free toothbrushes, uh, as uh, he also introduced uh, free travel for old age pensioners, which established himself as a very, very popular figure. And while Johnson might be this sort of bumbling eccentric, uh, Hawhey uh, actually brought himself up to be this highly educated, greatly eloquent speaker to whom people aspired. And his lifestyle, a lifestyle living in a country mansion outside Dublin, uh, went unexplained wealth, but we were told to take it on trust that he was a, a man who was wealthy because he'd made extremely good investments. It was only after that he left office a number of years later that stories started emerging as to the true extent and source of Hawhey's wealth. I remember writing one myself about six months after he stepped down from power, uh, pointing out how he had received the funding for a yacht from a local businessman. And then a number of years on, when another story broke involving other politicians and a donor, a rich businessman who had made donations to him, suddenly we were able to bring into the public domain information about how, how he had received uh, over a million pounds back in the 1980s. So remember, we're talking about much larger sums of money uh, back then than they may sound now. Uh, put into a deposit account for him in the Cayman Islands and how the money was shuffled back to various offshore accounts. And as the investigation continued, we discovered that uh, Hawhey, while in office, while telling everyone famously that they had to tighten their belts, had himself managed to accumulate the modern-day equivalent of £50 million in ill-gotten money from various donors. He effectively used his office as, as a cash machine for himself and uh, lived it up on the back of people um, and people who made donations and who sought favours in return. So Hahi 
died in political disgrace and his name was utterly tarnished. And we learned that, you know, a lot of this was obvious to us at the time. We we had restrictive libel laws, which stopped much of further digging at the Times, admittedly. We also had a cohort of supporters who angrily shouted down anyone who would try and uh, bring more information about this allegedly great man into the public domain. But I think we learned from it and that we decided when this was all revealed finally at a public tribunal, which he had to give evidence humiliatingly, that we would never allow ourselves to be duped again. And similarly, when it came to Bertie Ahern, who got caught up also in tribunal findings in relation to the receipt of cash to buy a house, um, cash because the man who at the time was Minister for Finance before he ascended to be the Taoiseach uh, didn't even have a bank account. So he went with drafts to get the cash out from a bank. And uh, people said no matter what Bertie Ahern had done, uh, particularly in relation to the peace process, we expect our politicians to do that without actually also misbehaving financially and taking advantage of their position. And I think that's a lesson that we have learned. And whatever shortcomings our political leaders may have in Ireland at present, none of them are actually been accused of enriching themselves or taking advantage of their position uh, to feather their own nests. And I think that is a lesson that could be well learned in the UK. Is Boris Johnson just going to get away with this, do do you think? I mean, after all, he's got away with lying about Brexit. He's got away with not sacking Priti Patel when she was found to have broken the ministerial code. He's got away with lying to the people in Northern Ireland. He's got away with lying to your tea shock. He's just about to get away with lying about um, Sadiq Khan against Purda rules. And he gets away with lying in the, in the House of Commons every week. Is, is, do you think he'll be held to account at all? Well, I can only watch on from across the Irish Sea and watch on a little bit baffled by the acceptance of this by a political and media establishment and just wonder why. Why is it that Britain no longer seems to want to apply reasonable standards to the conduct of public life? Or maybe this is an even deeper question. Does it really care? Has it ever really cared? Hmm. Yes, yes. I wonder I wonder how much of it is is deference to uh, to the bumbling posho, how much of it is to do with the, the pandemic. I mean who who knows? I, I do I find it as baffling as you. Um I know you we're on a tight there schedule. Is there is one thing that does strike me that there is this weakness, and it's common to many countries, the weakness for an entertainer as leader. Yes. And we that with Trump in the United States as a major issue as well. And there is a, a there are some people who would have a fondness for Boris Johnson here in Ireland as well. The Boris Johnson who they would have seen on television and have I got news for you and various other things over the years. Because he came to the Pendulum Summit, which is an event which takes place in January each year in Dublin, uh, which is run by a former Irish rugby international, which has become very successful as a motivational event with the likes of uh, Tony Robbins and uh, Jack Canfield and Alan Sugar and Richard Branson have all come to speak at it. And uh, Johnson was brought over uh, two years ago during his time before he became prime minister when he had left the British government and was undermining Theresa May. And yet the last of the tickets sold 
the organizer did a deal which cost him 75,000 euro uh, to bring Johnson across, 20% for the agent, about 57,000 for, um, for Johnson. And uh, Johnson gave a speech, not a particularly good speech. And then he did his interview afterwards with um, very well-known RT broadcaster, Brian Dobson, a very, very good interviewer, did his usual trick, which we know he does in the UK, of trying to grab uh, Dobson's notes from him to try and read the questions. And this big entertainment that he puts on as a show. And when he was finished, those who had paid up to €3,000 per ticket were given the opportunity of a meet and greet with Boris Johnson and get selfies taken with him. And apparently they lapped it up and apparently the organisers were delighted that they had brought Johnson on because that allowed them to sell the final tickets to make it a very profitable event for them. So there are always people who love this idea of celebrity in politics. And that's why populist politics often works and we're in an era again it would seem that Johnson is taking advantage of where populist nonsense works. Yes this is this is sad but true. Um, we are on a tight schedule and I, I know you've, you've got to go. Before I do let you go I mean thanks very much uh, it's great to talk to you and I hope we, we can we can do this again. Unlike me you are now in the EU how are you feeling about that because I am still quite envious about it have you been vaccinated? What is the vaccine rollout like where you are? And has your faith and the faith of the people in Ireland been shaken by all of this? Yeah, well, as, as it happens, I mean, there wouldn't be an enormous amount of love for the EU over the whole vaccination issue at present. We are so far behind the mm. UK. It's not funny. But that is the one thing that there would be admiration for Johnson's government for is uh, the, the way that it struck out after some catastrophic failures last year, which we've noted cost you over 125,000 lives. But there has been a determination to roll out the vaccination program, which seems to have had some success. We have been told that, well, look, we've got these supplies of vaccines coming to us because it's part of our share of the EU arrangements. But we're not blind to see that the EU was very slow in coming to the requisite arrangements with the manufacturers and has been slow with the distribution and rollout. So the uh, feeling that might have been prevalent in Ireland that the EU was very much on our side when it came to the whole Brexit thing, as it was, and the sort of the respect that we might have had for the EU institutions as a result has perhaps somewhat ebbed as a result of a feeling that it has been slow moving and cumbersome when it comes to something as essential as the vaccination rollout. And most people who do think of the EU here in Ireland, and it's not something that we would necessarily be thinking about on a regular basis, but are wise enough to realise that it isn't a perfect entity by any means. It does have its flaws like any political entities actually do. But at the same time, we do realise that we're far better in than we would be if we were out. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Um, that was Matt Cooper. You can read his article on Boris Johnson and political corruption in this week's edition of The New European. Thank you so much again to uh, to Matt Cooper. Uh, you, the New European is available in newsagents or you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk uk slash save for 10 pounds a month you get the printed and e-editions each week and the first 200 to subscribe will get a signed copy of the latest volume of alistair campbell's diaries thanks again to matt cooper 
Uh, now we are back to talk fairness and politics with Ben Fenton. Ben was the senior reporter of the Daily Telegraph. He was the chief media correspondent of the Financial Times. He's now written an extraordinary book, uh, which we're publishing extracts from in the New European this week and next week. To be fair, The Ultimate Guide to Fairness in the 20th Century is published by Mensch. It's available to buy online and in all good bookshops. Ben, welcome. And tell me, why did you write this book? And is it something to do with the fact that it seems to me that people all around the world in unprecedented numbers on left and right are saying that our society, our political and economic systems are not fair and that the the game is rigged, to use a phrase? Yeah, I, I think so. Hello, Stephen. Thanks for having me on. I, I think you're exactly right. And and I, I wrote the book because um, I was sitting back and watching politics, as I have done all my life, rather than being actively involved in it. And I suddenly thought, well, you know what, we're heading in these divergent directions uh, where everybody is more interested in being right um, than in being sort of just or, or fair, as it turns out, is the word that best sums it up. Uh, and that that can't be good. Um, that ends in big trouble for the for the world, for countries, for you know, for everybody, individuals, etc. So I, I suppose some years ago, and it was really prompted by Brexit, I have to say, that I um, decided to try to persuade some other people to get involved in sort of trying to start a a fair play movement. Um, didn't work out as such, so uh, I, I turned it into a book. And, and when you say fairness, what exactly are, are you talking about? Because, I mean, you talk in, in the book about how the age of fairness, the concept of fairness began and was codified. You, you're even putting a date on it, I think. Mm. But but surely, I mean, fairness presumably is something that's always been with us from, you know, early, early man. Even in, in the earliest times, you steal my property, you damage the group that I am, am with surely that that has always been recognized as unfair so what so what are you actually talking about well that's a multi-layered question Steve so (laughs) let me try to unpick it slightly so you are absolutely right in fact it's far 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 earlier than early man fairness unfairness in particular is an instinct that's so deep in our dna in our evolutionary history that we actually share it with species that are relatively unsophisticated such as dogs dogs have a sense of unfairness almost all animals that that live in packs and that have hierarchy in packs have the sense of unfairness and what it means what unfairness means in that sense is that you are not being treated in the way that is appropriate for your station, your effort, your contribution, your role, etc., etc., you know, your place in the pack. And we can see it in, in, um, in animals all over, you know, the, the, the animal kingdom, but it's, it's most obvious in monkeys, apes and human beings because we all articulate it. There's a marvellous video that I would urge people to watch of um, a, an experiment with a capuchin monkey, a pair of capuchin monkeys um, who are in uh, adjacent cages and they're both being asked by a researcher to do the same task, which is very simple, just receiving a pebble through one hole in their cage and then giving it back through another one. And each time they do it, they get a reward of a piece of cucumber. 
After a little bit of doing this, the researcher gives one of the monkeys a grape instead of a piece of cucumber, then gives the second monkey a piece of cucumber, and the second monkey goes potty. And it starts shaking its cage. It throws the cucumber at the researcher. It's basically reacting really viscerally to being treated unfairly. It's doing the same task. It deserves to have the same level of treatment. Now, the reason why it does it is the same reason why we feel fairness and unfairness, or particularly unfairness, so strongly, which is that if you are not being treated equally for equal effort, then you are likely to be being downgraded in the pack. Your chances of survival of getting the right amount of food, shelter, warmth, companionship, protection is becoming less. You are therefore likely to die. You are therefore likely certainly not to have the right within the pack to mate and to pass on your genes. And survival and procreation are the two most important driving instincts of, of higher species. So, in fact, most species. So that's on a visceral level. Unfairness is, is right deep inside us. Fairness, which is not necessarily the opposite of unfairness, I would say. Fairness, that feeling that you get, well, I've been treated properly. I've got what, what I need. Um, you know, or the, the warm sense that you get from knowing you've been fair to other people, that appears in a different and more sophisticated part of the brain. And that really probably only exists in human beings, but has existed in us, as far as we can tell, for hundreds of thousands of years. So early man prior to Homo sapiens emergent about 200,000 years ago, probably also treated each other in a kind of egalitarian way and in egalitarian societies we can see it today in hunter-gatherer tribes that still live in remote areas in egalitarian societies it isn't straightforward equality it's fair distribution appropriate to your effort appropriate to your contribution etc etc because fairness and equality are not the same thing i'll stop now let you get a word in it's i mean you you, you talk about it being the the act of having to interact with others to cooperate and the, the rules for, for doing that, which constitute what fairness is. When did we start to sort of lay these things down? Um, when were the rules of, of fairness set up? And, and is this something that Britain, you know, which at the time was not exact, exactly acting fairly uh, across the world in the days of empire did, did we lead the world in codifying the rules of fairness these are areas of very thin ice steve so <laughs> forgive me for treading carefully but so first of all i'd like you to, to imagine that up until the time when we became civilized human beings and i use the word advisedly living in cities, et cetera, et cetera. Up until that time, we lived as hunter-gatherers mostly. So as hunter-gatherers, as I've just described, you have to, to live in fair societies. You have to have an egalitarian approach. And I say egalitarianism is not the same as fairness. You have to have fair distribution because if you don't, people get unhappy and you get sort of fights going on. We kind of suppressed that instinct and we were much more of a top down authoritarian species once we started to live together in larger and larger numbers, because we simply couldn't work out how to do fairly distribution, fair distribution of resources. And so rule 
was was laid down from the top and we called it justice or whatever you know from the days of the babylonians it was it was called law or justice or whatever it was but that was an authority placed on people what has happened in more recent time and the reason why i kind of slightly jokingly you know sort of talk about fairness as being an english or british you know an english speaking thing and and i will go on to, to correct that impression in a moment is that really both sort of from a, whilst the Romans and the Greeks and, and, and Carthaginians and lots of other people um, had ideas about treating each other equally and working for a common good, they simultaneously suppressed vast m- numbers yeah. of their, their own fellow human beings. So, for instance, in Sparta, um, there was an entire class of people, almost like a subspecies called the helots, who had no rights whatsoever in Spartan society and just acted as slaves so the Spartans could go around being Spartan. And and, and so whilst the, whilst it's not an original idea to treat people equally or to pe- treat people in, in this kind of fair distribution, if you are simultaneously sort of screwing down this vast proportion of your population, you are not being fair. Okay, I think we can all agree with that. The same thing could also apply to the English, to the British Empire uh, as time, you know, in more recent times. But the one thing is that, so so the reason why I've got a section, a chapter in the book, which says, you know, is, is fairness, you know, a British idea? And I say, spoiler alert, no. I, it's it's not. I mean, of course, it's not. I've just for ages, you know, sort of ranting about how it's sort of a deep part of human nature. So it, it isn't. It's just, the thing is, we seem to be the first people to have developed a single word for it. Right. Fairness, as opposed to having a series of words where we encapsulate the ideas of equality, justice, you know, um, it's actually quite difficult in English to talk about it without saying fairness. But but it, you know, it, it, other languages have those words. No other major language in the world has a word that just means what we mean by fair. And so that's why it's kind of it, it is a sort of Anglo um, idea in in some ways. So the, the specific idea of fairness. Uh, the concept itself is common to everybody, but we seem to be the only people who've ever produced a single word to describe it. Um, and and a way, in a way, that's kind of quite a British thing to do, because if you think about organised sport, which is a, a something that only happens because people come together to cooperate to compete. And I can go into that a little bit in a minute, but because you need rules to play sport on an, in an organized way and you agree those rules to be fair between each other as you probably know the victorians in particular were the people who laid down the rules of sports like football um, and cricket which only a part of the world plays but you know that we were the people who who tended to write down the rules probably because we were a bunch of pedants and we felt it was necessary to do so but because of that you know you got things like football being a global sport and and so on we wrote down the rules of boxing marquis of queensbury wrote wrote down the rules of boxing so that people weren't getting killed quite so often in the ring and so on and so forth so it's more that sense of brits being quite sort of pernickety and and sort of you know annoying actually probably but 
as that they wrote down <laughs> the rules and therefore sort of if you like it developed a philosophy of what fairness was now i want to go put up the most enormous red flag and caveat to everything that i've just said about the british and the empire and so on and so forth the british empire was not built on fair treatment right. of other people it was built on the unfair exploitation of other people and their resources and i am not making any claims for our forebears having been fairer than anybody else i'm just saying that they came up with these ideas and and not just british people but there's an, there is an argument to say that the, in the english speaking world people had a greater sort of interest and obsession with fairness as an idea that they brought into a wider political sphere so for instance in new zealand you cannot get elected in new zealand unless you tell people how fairly you're going to treat them it's an absolute obsession with them too and the same sort of thing, you know, it spreads out. So, for instance, the, the people who wrote the rules of um, or who started to write the rules of sport in the United States were a German derived from a German um, movement called the Turners. And one of them was the first person to write down the rules of warfare for the Union side in the American Civil War in 1863. And from those rules, we developed the Geneva Conventions. And from the Geneva Conventions, we developed the idea that you can have international justice. So if you can see that sort of obsession with writing things down and making them specific, which does seem to be something from the English-speaking world, has given the world a chance to and a, and a guideline to how to act fairly over nations, between nations, that hadn't really previously existed. Um, yes, I mean, this is, it's, it's just, it's such a fascinating, fascinating topic. Um, and it is incredibly complex. And your book is, discusses overarching principles. And of course, I want to be as simplistic as, as possible. Um, I mean, there are some things that are mentioned in your book that I know will interest our readers and if we were to just play a, a guessing game of is this fair is this unfair we would be here through this pandemic and into the next pandemic I would have thought but but the, the well the rules of British politics make it as fair as we're intending to make it as fair as possible is the British electoral system fair can we perceive first past the post as fair can we perceive the Brexit referendum as fair? Can we can we even perceive as an extension of that because two of the, the four nations didn't vote for Brexit? So is, is the concept of the United Kingdom fair? Um, I'm really reluctant to present myself as an arbiter of what is and isn't fair. Yes. I'm quite happy to be uh, attacked for my definition of definitions of what fairness is um, and I've got quite a few of them they're, they're, they're all in, in the book um, but I don't really I mean I, I've got my own views so shall I give you my own personal yeah. views and this these, I, these aren't in the book I don't write about individual things as much as as uh, you know, such as Brexit so for instance again a big caveat I do write quite a lot about things like racism you know, which is clearly unfair because racism is based on not giving people the 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 
equal and merit-based opportunity to succeed in their lives, which is one definition of mine, of mine for, for what fairness is. But, I mean, if we take Brexit, um, I think that on the one hand, it's very unfair for people to look at the result of a democratically conducted referendum and say, we don't accept that and we're going to oppose it and we are going to try and find all sorts of ways to, to stop it happening and get in the way and call for another referendum and so on and so forth. I think that's unfair because you've agreed a set of rules in the first place and those are the rules that you ought to abide by. It's like playing a game of football and deciding you don't like the offside law and so you want to go back and change it. On the other hand, I also think it was deeply unfair to... Um, try to get people to vote in something as complex as a referendum on the future of their nation's relationships with their biggest trading bloc and with their immediate international neighbours on the basis of a a single question which is extraordinarily unnuanced and unsubtle and b on the basis of evidence which was quite clearly faked and distorted so that's unfair but it's unfair to challenge the result. You know, there's unfairness on both sides. The system, I think, in itself was pro- is probably not so much unfair as inept. I think it's an appallingly bad way of choosing really, really complicated um, policies of one kind or another. Um, and and you do find that you know when things are really inept, you're only sort of reasonable reaction to them is to say it's unfair it's threatening my future my life so that's i think one of the reasons why brexit has caused us so much trouble in this society is because both sides feel that they've been treated unfairly in the run-up to it and in the aftermath of it yes that's that's absolutely right the the uh, uh, we are coming from one side of the argument but i'm, I'm sure our listeners will be aware of um, will be aware of, of, of many people who voted leave, uh, ordinary people and um, and the people who were behind the, the leave campaign who complain regularly about their... their and Steve, I don't think we'll get out of that until we start to listen to each other and to our reasons for, for believing what we believe, both both sides. You know, that is the give each other a fair hearing. You know, one of the many words, <laughs> ways in which the word fair creeps into our language. You know, to be fair to people, again. Yes. You, have to, you have to know what they think and you don't know what you think if you spend your whole time shouting at them. This is this is extremely true. I, I don't want to give away next week's extract entirely, but you are um, talking about the failure of populist politicians to confront the coronavirus and the way this crisis has remade democratic politics, or it could remake democratic politics. And how, so, how has this disease offered us a chance to to reassess um, how we relate to each other, and, and what is the fair way out of this pandemic, do you think, for, for Britain and for the world? So the thing we haven't really talked about is my sort of the sort of central thesis of, of my book, which isn't a particularly it's not an original idea. It's, it has been knocking around a bit. That that central thesis is that in human beings, there are two major driving forces that have made us the most successful species for good or ill that the planet has ever seen. And those two driving forces are cooperation and competition. Competition is something that is present in most species. Cooperation is rarer and it's very, very rare. In fact, unique to us 
and probably other hominids that existed before to be able to bring them together, to harness these two big beasts together and go forward with both competition and cooperation. Now, in my view, what fairness is, is the kind of the, the, the harness it's it's the thing that allows us to to bring our two driving instincts together because left on their own you can't have sort of competitive cooperation or cooperative competition it just kind of doesn't work unless you introduce another element which is what i think fairness is so um in terms of the coronavirus what we have seen is that we work together spectacularly as a species, when we are both competitive and cooperative. So the the response to coronavirus, particularly the production of vaccines in record times with different companies working in competition because they want to be the first ones to get it out there, but also cooperatively because they're sharing results and they're, you know, through the World Health Organization, through individual nations and, you know, (laughs) <laughs> they've not done it very well but in theory through the european union mm. you know, that there is a, a there has been an extraordinary achievement in scientific and medical terms and that's got to be the way forward for the for the for the species really is to try to be cooperatively comp- competitive and and, and com- competitively cooperative it is an absolutely fascinating topic, and it is. I, I would urge people uh, who, who are listening to this to, to to buy read the extracts first and, and buy the book. Ben, thank you so much for for being with us. That's Ben Fenton. To be fair, the ultimate guide to fairness in the twenty first century, published by Mensch. It's available to buy online, uh, and it's available in all all good bookshops uh, too. Ben, thank you so much. Thank you. Hello, I'm Matt Kelly, founder of The New European. If you like The New European podcast, you're going to love The New European newspaper. Unique content from people who love being European as much as you do. A different take on current affairs, bringing insight to untold stories from within our continent and explaining how they shape our lives. And page after page of fabulous arts and culture coverage from across Europe. It's witty, entertaining And when it drops through your letterbox each week, it's going to remind you that a strong pro-European community is alive and well in this country we love. It's on sale at newsagents every Thursday, but make sure you don't miss a copy by subscribing. We've got a special time-limited offer just now. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe and you get the newspaper delivered every week anywhere in the UK for just £10 a month. And you also get full access to our e-edition. You're going to love it and you'll be supporting great journalism. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. And now it's time to re-enter the Hall of Shame, our new home for rubbish ministers, political blather, things that just annoy me generally. Uh, Let's start with Boris Johnson, who we've talked a lot about on this podcast already. He went campaigning in Hartlepool. He was asked why people should vote Tory at the by-election there on May the 6th. A lot of people seem to be about to do that. He said it was because his government had just invested £3.5 million in the local hospital. And that's great news, isn't it? Even if £3.5 million doesn't seem like a whole lot when you just spent £2.6 million on the number 10 media suite. Uh, Most of that on enormous flags. But anyway, 
However, it turns out that the hospital that Boris Johnson was referring to wasn't the hospital in Hartlepool. After all, Hartlepool General, it was North Tees Hospital in Stockton. That's not in the constituency that the by-election is in. It's about an hour and a half away on public transport. Think about getting there from Hartlepool if you're desperate. And it turns out that the money he was referring to had all gone to spruce up North Tees' A&E department, while the A&E department in Hartlepool had closed. Maybe that's why Boris Johnson announced on Thursday that he's unlikely to go campaigning in Scotland during the Scottish elections. Alack, it's Anne Widdicombe Corner, and I'm going to read you a little parable from that Anne has written in her Daily Express column. Remember the game of the two lions, she writes. The first was in a zoo run by a caring owner. He was fed healthily. The vet was called whenever he showed signs of being ill. At a grand old age, when he faced a lingering painful death, he was put to sleep. The second lion lived on the plains of Africa. He ate only what he could kill. If he was ill, he had to suffer. And when he was dying, no one put him out of his misery. I prefer the freedom and risks of being the second lion. That's what Anne Widdicombe wrote. So please, will you join my crowdfunder to send Anne Widdicombe to the plains of Africa, where she can live out her remaining days foraging for bushmeat, eating only what she can kill, with no one to help if she gets ill? But crucially, she can do all that without wearing a mask. It's a result, win-win all round. I'll give you details of my crowdfunder to send Anne Widdicombe to the plains of Africa in the next New European podcast. Uh, but finally, let's turn back to Northern Ireland there. Um, I just want to read out three things that Kate Hoey has said down the years. 2016, she wrote an article in the Daily Telegraph. Its headline was, Brexit won't hurt Northern Ireland at all, instead it will brighten its future. In 2020, she said, MPs who vote against Boris Johnson's Brexit bill do not really care about the fate of Northern Ireland. And in 2021, she's just tweeted, the protocol has destabilised Northern Ireland, placing a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland without the consent of the pro-union community has been the trigger for this unacceptable violence. I wonder who it was that supported the, the, the protocol and the bills that did this in the first place. Maybe we'll find out one day. But our final entrant in the Hall of Shame is, is a, a friend of Kate Howie's. It's, it's Nigel Dodds, the former deputy leader of the DUP. Uh, and I just want to take you back to early June 2016. Two former prime ministers um, with the referendum on the line, went to Ulster University and gave uh, very good and what's turned out to be very prescient speeches. John Major said a leave vote would mean you would end up having border controls and customs checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Tony Blair said leaving the EU would put Northern Ireland's future at risk. It would be deeply damaging and a reckless cause. And at the time, Nigel Dodds said this was irresponsible. He said it was an attempt to scaremonger and unsettle people and destabilise the situation in Northern Ireland. He said of all the claims that have been made about the threats to the UK if we were to leave the EU, I find this claim that Northern Ireland's political stability is going to be undermined one of the most depressing and disappointing. And now Nigel Dodds has popped up to blame Boris Johnson for selling Northern Ireland out. It's a matter of regret that the Prime Minister did not stick to his guns, he wrote. Well, it would be a matter of even deeper regret if the paramilitaries soon were to decide that they were wrong not to stick to their guns.
That's it for the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. My thanks this week to Matt Cooper, to Ben Fenson, to you for listening and supporting us. Please remember to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Positive reviews mean an awful lot to us. Subscribe to The New European at neweuropean.co.uk slash save. For £10 a month, you get the printed and the editions each week. The first 200 to subscribe will get a signed copy of the latest volume of Alistair Campbell's Diaries. You can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European uh, on Twitter, at The New European, and you can follow me on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And all that's left to say is Alistair Campbell. Stop writing your diaries. Start picking up your bagpipes. Here you go. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns